Thursday edition of Locked On NBA. David Locke along with Ben Golliver, Washington Post national columnist. Bunch of fun things to talk about. I have been the optimist. You have been the pessimist. The world (laughs) is leaning my direction. Adam Silver with a call earlier this week with the owners. Players talking to each other. Ben Golliver, there is room on the optimist boat. Are you joining uh, not quite yet. I mean, look, I don't want to try to punch holes in everything, but I do think that the timing of those reports coming right on the heels of Charles Barkley and uh, Shaquille O'Neal saying cancel the season, cancel the season, I don't think that was coincidental. I think if you're the NBA and the players, you want to be able to make your own decision on this and you want to be doing it on your timeline. And you do have to be protective against, you know, mounting pressure from the media uh, or from, you know, fans or other outside interests. Uh, and obviously you want to be doing it on your own schedule. So I think that was a factor. Um, now, certainly there are, uh, the players, and especially the star players, we know they've wanted to play, right? And we, un- and we understand that they're sort of getting over this idea that, like, there's no way to guarantee their safety. And so it sounds like they're saying, well, you know, we're still interested in playing, you know, despite the safety concerns. But I still think there's sort of a baked-in assumption here that there's going to be a quality testing program and I think what we're seeing, even from some of these rapid tests uh, used by, like, the government, for example, is that there hasn't been, you know, uh, a super-duper high success rate on those. And then some of the other tests take a long time to, to get you a result. And if you're trying to test guys every day, if you're trying to isolate players if they test positive, you need to have a bankable testing solution, not only in terms of quantity, which has been an issue that a lot of people have talked about, but also in terms of quality, too. And, um, you know, there is one new development potentially in saliva testing where uh, you could swab someone's mouth and be able to get a result from that. Uh, And I guess there's been some pretty promising trials on that. I guess the question is how quickly can you scale that up so that all players would be able to use it. But um, I think that's the big hiccup here. You know, like if you're if you're wanting to do this on sort of an above board way at all, you've got to have a solution to the testing. And I don't think just optimistic reports or, uh, you know, players saying, hey, we're in. Uh, solves that problem. I think there's two things that uh, jumps out to me about what's going on. One is it's pretty clear to me that all three leagues are moving together at the same time. Like I feel that MLB, NHL, and NBA like are all going to move together so that one's not, you know, the the test dummy out there. That they're gonna they're all going to try to do this together. I think that gives them some power in numbers. I think that would be smart, um, you know, and if you're not moving together, I would suggest moving second or third. <laughs> you know, I, I think that there's a lot of pressure in, in being in the first and having whatever, you know, backlash that there will be, because I think there will be some level of backlash from people who are saying, look, you're not, you're putting profits over player health. You guys shouldn't be playing. It's not safe. And uh, you have to respect those concerns, especially when there's athletes across multiple sports who are saying right now they're not comfortable playing. Um, you know, at the current stage of events, and especially when you've got, you know, thousands of people dying on a regular basis around the country, those are justified concerns. And so if I was doing this strategically, I would not want to be first. And if I was, you know, as part of a bigger group, I would feel more comfortable. The final one is that you bring it up. I think it all comes down to two things, testing, and then what your philosophy is when someone tests positive. It's clear they've made They've made it clear, hey, people are going to test positive. We're going to have a policy, and they move on. And it sounds to me like the policy is going to be something in the line of, 
You know, what the PGA Tours policy is right now is that it's going to, you're, for 10 days, you have to be self-isolated uh, so that if somebody gets the, the virus and tests positive, it's going to be like they get a sprained ankle and they're out for 10 days. For sure. They don't have enough time to play with, I think, to do it any other way. I mean, you pretty much have to do it that way. I think my big concern is that we know from, you know, the Rudy Gobert experience that one player testing positive can also mean that players in contact with that guy may also test positive in the in the near future after that. And so um, if you do have one positive test, then you're going through this extensive testing process of kind of everyone he's played against, uh, everybody on his team, you know, everybody else who's been in contact with him. And, you know, that could, you know, in a theory, set off a little bit of a panic or a little bit of a concern in that situation. And it could also, in a worst case scenario, lead like an entire team, <laughs> you know, to be testing positive and therefore shut down for, for the playoffs. So, there's a lot of, uh, you know, nightmare scenarios that they need to consider. But I do think that the biggest nightmare of all is that the NBA is sitting here looking at no revenue, looking at the need to put something on television, looking at the possible need to renegotiate the collective bargaining agreement or basically start it from scratch because, um, you know, everything is going to be thrown off by the huge revenue hit that's being taken, uh, you know, taking place this year. And, you know, they're willing to compromise on some of these safety issues. And, I guess what I would like to hear from the players who are saying, hey, we're interested in, in you know, playing, they need to take it a step further. They need to say, we're interested in you know, participating in a bubble. We're interested in potentially doing that without our families, right? Or we're, we're only going to do it if we can have our families, right? They need to put a little bit more uh, specifics uh, on their participation because th- that, to me, would represent progress. You know, I wasn't particularly surprised that a guy like LeBron, who's maintained he wants to play this whole time, would want to play and and guys like Steph Curry and Kevin Durant being on that call when they're unlikely to participate in the playoffs, uh, you know, it doesn't really add that much weight or or clout to that situation. So uh, to me, I think that we still need to hear more from the players about their interest and their level of participation uh, before I'm ready to say, Hey, we're, we're really making progress here. Locked on NBA, Ben Golliver, Washington Post, David Locke along with you. Brought to you by Built Bar. Use the promo code Locked On to get $10 off your first box. I'll tell you more about Built Bar in a second. All right, there once was a day, a long, long time ago, when a great Rob Mahoney NBA bright mind wrote for Sports Illustrated. He's now with The Ringer. And a Ben Golliver wrote for Sports Illustrated. He's now with Washington Post. He's the same guy I'm just talking to right now. And they would put together the 100 best players in the NBA. That's a little different than what ESPN just did, but there's some elements to it that are similar. So you're used to doing these kind of ranks and ESPN just did a a tip of the hat to them. I think they did a fun uh, NBA discussion of the 74 greatest players in the NBA for 74 years. Let's start at the top. Michael one, LeBron two, Kareem three, Bill Russell four, Magic five. Any complaints? Uh, no major complaints. It's pretty good. Um, you know, how do you feel about Magic there? Ma- especially Magic versus Kareem, because uh, I think so much of Kareem's accumulation, uh, you know, that, that portion of his legacy, you know, all the titles that they were able to win together in L.A. I mean, do you feel like when you contrast his pre-L.A. tenure with his L.A. tenure that maybe Magic winds up looking kind of like the driving force for that success or do you still give him full credit for all those rings in uh in LA because I think there's a case to be made that magic could potentially 
uh, you know, Trump a, a Kareem in this conversation. So I don't. And here's why. Not because of any great knowledge in my end. My analyst is Ron Boone, who was the third all-time leading scorer in the ABA, then played in the NBA, played 1,045 uh, games straight. Long-time NBA player. John Lucas, the lo- former number one pick of the NBA draft, Houston Rocket, played at Washington, I think, NBA player. Those guys, that generation of players that I'm able to to talk with because of Ron Boone, ref- talk of Kareem with such esteem and such awe to the point which John Lucas, we were asked him once, the five best players he's ever seen in the NBA. And he got to number one and he said, Kareem, and you want to know why? And I go, why? And he goes, because Kareem is God. Like, that's the <laughs> level that they talk to him about. So to me, I'm going to tip my hat to these guys that have been in the league for 25, 30, 40, 50 years now who were saw Kareem at every stage of his career and say, you know what? That was one of the single, the single most unstoppable offensive forces that existed. He's a 19-time All-Star, six-time MVP, and I almost have a feeling from them that his six MVPs are in are not uh, reflective of what he did, but no differently than the way people got bored of Michael winning the MVP. They got bored of Kareem winning the MVP. Yeah, I mean, I, one of my favorite arguments in favor of Kareem it, it expands beyond the NBA, and it says, look, look at his dominance in college on that level and look at his dominance in high school. I mean, he was a legit national phenomenon at Power Memorial High School way back in the day. Um, you know, incredible winning streak there, more than 70 games in high school, I believe. In college, he barely lost in college, and he gets to the NBA and he wins titles multiple spots and, and you know, really helps enhance the reputation of a, a lot of his uh, teammates. So he's got a sp- pretty strong case. Um, you know, I, I think I'm glad Magic's in the top five because, to me, I think when you're looking at a guy, just an individual resume, you know, still technically in the modern era, he has to be over a guy like Bird to me. I think that he just had a better career than Bird did. Um, you know, unfortunately, his career was cut shorter. I think he would have had even more accolades than he did. Um, but, you know, he's he's always been in that Mount Rushmore conversation for me. And I think, um, you know, if, if we're doing this at all towards personality or marketability, a guy like he, uh, him gets a boost over Kareem. But I think if you're going just based off pure accolades, uh, Kareem uh, being over Magic makes sense. The next five on ESPN's list were Wilt Chamberlain, Larry Bird, Tim Duncan, Kobe Bryant, and Shaq. We'll touch on those when we continue. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is rebuilding energy bars. The day and age of the energy bar where you had to have the bottle of water with you so you could eat your grainy, chewy, gross energy bar. Over. Now they're delicious. Almost when you don't, if you eat them regularly, they're marshmallowy is the best way to describe the texture. Made with real dark chocolate. The cookie dough bar is back. That's a big deal. I made my order recently before they brought that back out of retirement. They bring them back out of retirement every now and then. You can get your Built Bar box with a promo code locked on. You get $10 off your box. You can build your own box. You can do a 15-flavor mix box to sample all of them. I had the orange chocolate cream yesterday while I was golfing. Loved it. The word on the street, 
freeze them, they become even better. That's what I'm hearing from everyone. Little internet buzz, little locked on host buzz about the built bars that they all have is to freeze them as well. So I just did that with my mint brownie delight and my double chocolate mousse. They are currently in the freezer. We'll see how if uh, I agree with all of that as well. Go to builtbar.com, put in the promo code locked on. If you like Ben Golliver and you care about health, Listen to this for one second. Compare it to a Cliff Bar. You have 140 less calories, 33 less carbs, 17 grams of fewer sugar grams. It's way healthier for you. Tastes great. It's Built Bar. Promo code locked on $10 off your first box. Now, six on the list, as I said, Chamberlain, who I never know how to rank. Like, that's the player to me as the. And I'm old. I'm 50. Uh, well, I'm not. I'm 49, damn it. I didn't say that. I'm not there yet. Uh, uh, I, I never know what to do with Wilt. Like, I real. I mean, like, if we pull up Wilt's basketball reference, like, it's stupid, right? Like, it seems to me that there's, like, no reason why Wilt shouldn't be number one. Like, the guy decided to lead the league in assists one year, so he did that. Then he decided to lead the league in rebounding. Then he scored 100 points. Then he averaged 50 points a game. Like, how is this not the greatest player in the history of the game? Yet, like, I mean, he averaged, it's a different era, but he averaged 50 points and 26 rebounds a game and played 48.5 minutes a game that year. You know, I, I hear you on how complicated it is, but I actually think ESPN nailed that one because he's got to be behind Russell when you're looking at their head-to-head. I understand you might say Russell had better teammates than everything else, but when you have that dominant of a head-to-head performance, uh, just from a win-loss perspective, I think that's pretty clear. And then I would still take Kareem over Wilt. I mean, you know, Kareem – or sorry, Wilt, you know, part of his appeal was just that he was so far ahead of his time, right, when he first came in and just no one knew what to do with him. And, you know, part of this exercise is comparing and contrasting eras and how much do you, you know, benefit guys that they played during a very talented era versus, you know, playing at a, a time that maybe it was not quite as competitive. And I think that you do have to dock him a little bit uh, just based on the competition. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's got averaging 50 points a game to me is the single best statistical accomplishment that any NBA player has at any point. Um, from a consistency factor. The fact that he averaged more than 48 minutes per game for a season is pretty insane. Um, you know, he broke all the record books. Uh, but that said, I think he's pretty comfortable at that number six spot. You just kind of automatically threw magic ahead of Larry Bird. I, oh, yeah. I, I think there's some people in Boston that are going to be a little upset with you. Now, understanding Larry, 23 <laughs> by the time he gets in the league, 30, you know, he, he really, his back fails him. I don't know, it's hard to say. Like, his last year in the league, he averaged 20, 10, and 7, by the way. I just want to point that out. Like, we all talk about how his back failed him. His last year in the league, the dude averaged 20 points, 9.6 rebounds, and 7 assists while not being able to move, shooting 47% from the field, 41% from 3, and 93% from the line. Like, you know, for all these other guys, Magic, Michael, Duncan, Nash, Steph, None of them won MVP three years in a row, right? The last guy to win MVP well, three years in a row before Larry Bird was Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain. That's it in the history of the game. He won it three for three straight years. This was the best player in the league. No, I hear you. I mean, his his prime and his peak years were up there with basically anyone. Uh, to me, it's the longevity factor, obviously, with the health issues. 
And, you know, you said, I'm going to anger some people in Boston. I mean, how about this? Are you totally sure that he should be ahead of Tim Duncan when you're looking at total uh, career accumulation accomplishments? I mean, Duncan is winning titles during the heyday of, of the Kobe Shaq Lakers of, you know, uh, you know, some other pretty you know talented teams along the way. He beats the LeBron James led Miami heat. Um, you know, some of those titles in the early two thousands were probably coming in, in pretty grinding fashion and, uh, maybe not the prettiest titles ever, but if you're saying total body of work accolades and just a much longer career, I mean, almost two decades straight of 50 win seasons. Personally, I would put Tim Duncan above Larry Bird at number seven. I don't know about you. Well, it's funny because I'm one of the biggest Duncan kind of guys out there. Like when people are talking Duncan, I, I, I always like I was I think I was early on the game of like when Duncan was still playing that he was one of the 10 best players in the NBA um, I, I was very happy they had Duncan ahead of Kobe, frankly. Like, that's one that's always frustrated me when it goes the other way. I think Duncan has 100%. the best winning percentage of any player in the history of the NBA. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, that matters to me, right? Like, he's won a thousand regular season games. So I, I, I might be willing to do that with you. Like, I might be willing to go Duncan ahead of of Larry Bird, but not in a disrespect for Larry Bird more that like, I probably am one of the biggest Tim Duncan fans of all time and just think he is the ultimate winner. And that is why we play is to score more points than the opponent. And I think when it gets down to it, he contributed to his team winning maybe as much as any of these guys we've talked about. For sure. I mean, that's the argument boiled down, uh, you know, in a nutshell. I think the best argument you could make for Bird, not only did he have that super high peak, but I think that his game, like let's say you give him the modern era, he comes up shooting three-pointers his entire life, and he's taking high-volume three. He's got that pure stroke. We know what he did in the three-point contest, you know, challenging everybody before, you know, basically letting them know he was going to win. I think that, you know, his – shooting ability and offensive uh, creativity with the ball in his hands, passing ability, just the all-around offensive game that you've described would trans translate very well to the modern era. And so you could say, look, he was a little bit of a victim of his own time. I mean, he was obviously excellent in the 80s, but if he comes along, you know, 20 years later or 30 years later, um, he could have had just absolutely crazy stats and been even more unstoppable. And, uh, you know, the whole thing would have looked differently because I think, you know, ultimately I look back on Bird's career and think this guy had, a weapon that he kind of left in the closet for almost the entire thing. Right. I mean, you just, it's almost incomprehensible how few uh, three pointers that he took. I'm with you on um, Duncan over Kobe, by the way, for sure. And also over Shaq. I mean, to me, Duncan has to be over both those guys because of the consistency and doing it in one location and being able to make his teammates better and being a reliable person, never getting into that divorce situation where you're costing your franchise, uh, you know, shots at titles. But I actually think Shaq should be over Kobe so do I. in that nine ten de- in that nine ten debate. Yeah, why do you say that? Because I just think Shaq. I mean, I think Shaq truly is one of the most dominant forces that we've ever had in the history of the game. Um, and you know, he won his title in L.A. and he won his title in Miami. And um, I, I think he, I, I think he's truly one of the great greatest forces we ever had. I mean. Like, if you look at his prime years, 29, 14, and 4 in that era? I mean, <laughs> I know. come on. I know. And he also, I mean, he bent the game, right? Like, everybody had to have, like, just guys who would go out there and foul Shaq six times during a game. You know, like, there's all these stiffs in that era who were basically employed just to try to deal with Shaq during the playoffs. Um, 
I think the best argument for Kobe would be that he basically maximized his potential from a work ethic standpoint. Um, now, I think at all times he was his own worst enemy too in terms of his playing style, so maybe you detract points from that. I think with Shaq, the frustrating part is that he really did have the physical tools to be the greatest player ever. Um, and, you know, I think maybe whether through t- putting on weight or injury issues or just, you know, personality conflicts along the way, uh, his story got a little bit more complicated than we, me- we might have thought when he was first coming up. But, you know, in terms of just like, you know, building a player in a laboratory, you know, Shaq's near the very top of the players, you know, all time from a physical specimen perspective. I mean, what's he call himself the most dominant ever? Um, and I think that uh, that kind of hints at what he was able to do from a physique standpoint. I think I agree with you. On, and I, I've always felt the two criticisms of Shaq are wrong. I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain why I think the two main criticisms of Shaq are wrong as as we continue. Chad Ford is getting you ready for the NBA draft whenever that is. We've pushed the deadline back and when people can go with Chad Ford's new podcast, Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. It's available on Spotify. You can follow it there. Subscribe on iTunes. Fabulous podcast. John Hollinger and he redraft once a week and plus they go through all the other top prospects. Did top international prospects with Fran Frischella. Top numbers prospects with John Hollinger and this week talked about the top lottery picks as well. So check it out. It's Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. The two criticisms of Shaq are one is all he could do is dunk, which I always think is the stupidest thing ever because we now say it about Giannis too. If Mike D'Antoni could get a dunk every possession, he wouldn't shoot a three. For sure. Yeah, no, I mean, right. especially if Shaq's doing the dunking, right? right. Because he, he's not going to miss him. It's not like, it's not like a high-risk uh, high attempt. The second one is the idea that he, you know, that didn't maximize kind of that you just talked about. That it's, it's always on him. If you look in the history of the game, of players that weigh more than 280 pounds, they don't last. He lasted better than almost any of them, right? Yao Ming, Nikola Pekovic, Eddie Curry, they don't last. The game is not made for people that weigh over 300 pounds. So for Shaq to have actually played 1,200 regular season games and that length of time, he actually might have maximized what he was capable of with that incredible body because that body's actually not made for the NBA. No, I hear you on that for sure. I mean, his footwork was incredible. His speed, quickness, agility. I mean, he had moves in traffic, uh, you know, when he was younger, especially like, you know, going coast to coast and everything. I guess maybe I'm, I'm more hinting towards like the conditioning side, right? Like it did feel... Uh, pretty, you know, earlier than I expected that he started carrying extra weight and maybe that made his life more difficult um, than it needed to be. I also think like if he had come along 20 years later, they would have been trying to keep him, you know, under 300, right? I mean, for sure. And I think that could have extended his career even more, you know, if he could have committed to that and and done it year round, you know, maybe they get Shaq on the vegan diet. I mean, that's probably anathema to him, but um, you know, I, I just think there was, you know, too many years where we were watching Shaq just a little bit slower, a little bit heavier, a little bit beefier than he needed to be. All right. I thought there were two positional debates as you moved in this that I thought were really great. So let me, I want to walk through them with you. Let's go with point guards. 
They rank the point guards in the following fashion, all very closely coupled together. But I think this is a really interesting. They had Stockton, then Iverson, then Nash, then Isaiah Thomas, all together, by the way. I don't know if you think James Harden's a point guard, but he was next. Jason Kidd, and then Chris Paul. So those six, Stockton, Iverson, Nash, Isaiah Thomas, Jason Kidd, Chris Paul. Who's top of your list? Who's bottom of your list? Um, well, I think, first of all, I guess I, I would start with, I feel like uh, Iverson got overrated in, the, in this conversation. Um, you know, to me, obviously, he's not necessarily like a pure point guard. But if you're looking at his overall body of work, I mean, he had some uh, some really high highs, obviously, the finals trip, uh, scoring titles and things of that nature. But when I'm saying, you know, I look at the efficiency part, how well does that hold up? How much is he making his teammates better? Is he winning on his own terms versus uh, capable of translating his skills to any other context? And then just how much is he winning, period? Um, you know, for all the flash and the excitement, I loved his game when I was a kid, you know, definitely, uh, you know, everybody loved his sneakers. I mean, he had a major cultural impact on the sport. There's no question, but if we're saying best NBA careers, I think he's behind at least, you know, Jason Kidd or some of those other names that you, you mentioned for sure behind Steve Nash, uh, no doubt. And that doesn't necessarily mean Steve Nash is going to beat him one-on-one, but I don't think that's the criteria, right? It's like who put together the, the most impressive body of work. And I think, um, you know, Iverson gets, it sounds like to me, a little bit of a cult hero boost in, in this ranking. The effective field goal percentages on Allen Iverson are ugly. Like it wasn't necessarily an era where that's the number we looked at, but like the idea that this guy scored 31 points a game with a 42% effective field goal percentage speaks to your point. I think it's interesting. Well, are you, the two I think are interesting. Are you with are, me on that one or, or who, no, who, who, who would you move well, up? Well, I think it's interesting. Like Isaiah Thomas did win two titles, right? Was a finals MVP. I mean, that's a pretty big resume line that these other guys don't have. Like, kid won a title, but not the same way. And then Steve Nash is a two-time MVP, back-to-back. That's a pretty big line. Now, frankly, no one's got Stockton's assist numbers either. So, like... I mean, there's Stockton's got 3,700 more assists than anyone else, right? He's got 580 steals more than anyone else. So those are two pretty big assist lines that like, it's interesting to me. I think this, the reason I like this debate is because it, it kind of makes you define what you believe in. Like, do you believe in individual seasons? Do you believe in length and depth of career? Do you believe in titles? Like, what is it that, that is your defining analysis point on a player's career. Yeah. I think for me, from this group, Isaiah would get the, the top billing. Um, not only did he have the two titles and some just incredible playoff performances, but he also had head to head wins in the playoffs over Jordan, uh, over magic, over Larry, and even over Drexler in the finals. Um, on top of that, I think he was an all-star like his first 12 years uh, in the league. And also, I mean, his numbers could have been much bigger than they were, but Detroit, especially during their heyday, was playing at the slowest pace in the league. And he was also spreading the ball around to like five, six, seven, eight different threats on that roster. So if he had needed to be in a situation where he was like averaging 20-10 every year, I think he easily could have done that. 
Um, second to me would be Stockton. I really do value the consistency and longevity factor, uh, two-way player toughness, maximizing his potential, and then just accumulating crazy statistics. I didn't realize that he didn't really start full-time for Utah until he was 25 years old. And so to think about all those records in that context is just insane, right? Um, because he is so far ahead of everybody on the assistant and even the Steelers leaderboard uh, to realize, you know, he was starting uh, kind of from behind the eight ball there is pretty crazy. Uh, from there, I would probably have Nash and Kidd in a similar tier uh, than Chris Paul and then Iverson. By the way, the Stockton number that's just amazing is he played every game in 17 of his 19 seasons. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, that, those are the values that I kind of look to. It's not, I'm not Mr. Cal Ripken Jr. over here. I'm not saying Iron Man does it all right. But to have that level of dependability makes things so easy for all of your teammates. It makes their lives, uh, you know, just, uh, just plug and play, right? It also makes it easier for your organization to retool your supporting cast when you can look at your roster and say, well, we know, you know, this guy's our point guard. And he's going to be, you know, getting us 12 assists every night. All right, here was the other one I thought was really interesting. Similar era, kind of crossing over of era of players uh, to that one is power forwards. Carl Malone, this was their order. I guess, is Moses Malone, we're going to call him a center? We might put him in, I mean. Yeah, kick him out. I feel like they had Moses Malone a little bit too highly ranked anyways. I mean, he has these crazy rebounding totals that I think, you know, just kind of pop off the, the page, especially when you're going like, you know, cross era comparisons. It's like, whoa. To me, I didn't they have him like top twenty. I feel like that's a little generous. Wasn't he a three-time MVP though? Yeah, but I, don't you feel like the voters were rewarding the rebounding totals back then too? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's when, that's interesting. I mean, he's he's the MVP in seventy-eight, seventy-nine, which is the year before. That's kind of the you know the forgotten era. Right, and then he's the MVP for Houston. Goes to Philadelphia as a free agent or whatever it was, and wins the MVP again for a different team. I think he's the only player in the history of the league to win the MVP back to back years for different teams. Well, I, I guess I'm still not convinced. The, the MVP argument to me it's tricky because, like with Nash, I mean he's a two time MVP, but don't most people say two time? But you know, like, I think there's still some debate about, okay, did he really deserve both of those? Was he really the best player in the entire league for both of those? And, you know, it's tricky not knowing what the criteria were for the voters back then. Um, I'm not saying he's terrible. I just, you know, to me, uh, I mean, do you feel like you can't tell the story of the NBA without Moses Malone? Well, it depends. If you're an ABA guy, you're going to say that he's part of that, you know, that that story should be told a little bit. Um yeah, yeah, I don't for know. sure. I mean, I, I understand as we've that. talked about before, that Philadelphia 76er team is kind of dear to my heart. I think they're like, that was my last member. That's the team I would do last dance about. Like, <laughs> I think they're this like right. incredible team because they were great. And then all of a sudden they got stuck in between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and these amazing Celtic and Laker teams and got kind of forgotten in the history of the game. So, um, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think... Yeah, I do think Moses Malone's part of the history of the game. Coming to the league as a teenager, it's kind of the same way. I don't think you can tell the history of the league without Spencer Haywood. So I would probably answer your question that you need Moses Malone in the history of the game. Let's move past Moses, though. I thought this was interesting grouping. We'll put Moses off the side. Carl Malone, Dirk Nowitzki, Kevin Garnett, Charles Barkley. 
I think that was it. That four. Um, David Robinson was the next in that list. But what's your thought on that four? Because you've got, I mean, that's a pretty interesting one to me too, that kind of grouping of power forwards. Yeah, for sure. I mean, weren't we debating whether or not there were spots in the top 25 for all these guys uh, last week or two weeks ago? And it seems like they actually found room for all of them. Or were we saying, was there spots in the top 20? I can't remember. No, our question was, how many guys in Jordan's era were in the top 20? And we came to the conclusion that it was Carl Malone and Akeem Olajuwon were the only ones, and we were right. Olajuwon, by the way, I I do feel like Olajuwon is the player that gets the shortest. Like, I always feel like he's inappropriately ranked and unfair at 12, but then... When you, it's kind of like I'm Dick Vitaling it, where I'm about to put six, you know, 93 teams in the NCAA tournament, because like I think <laughs> yeah. I think Elijah one's way better than 12th all time, and it's forgotten how great he was, and you know, at his best he was just, you know, two titles and just incredible. And then you ask me who I'm moving out of there, I don't have the person. So, um, I you know I don't I maybe 12th is perfect for Elijah one, but I feel like he's he's at a he's a high 12. How's that? Uh, what is your yeah, thought on Malone, Nowitzki? No, I'm, I'm with ahead. you. First of all, I'm with on. I'm with you on Elijah one. I think that um, there's no case for him to me to get into the top ten. I think that group is pretty hard and fast set. I mean, maybe you want to move him to eleven, but otherwise, I think they had him in a really good spot. Um, you know, in terms of these power forwards, uh, they clearly favored uh, Malone. Uh, I think that they gave a, a real boost to the scoring figure. I think we went back and forth on him versus Dirk. I, I forget where we landed, but they should be in the same range. I think Dirk should definitely be over KG. I think they got that right. Uh, and I think you have a real debate between uh, KG and Barkley in terms of, uh, you know, who's the better player. Now, I think KG probably has a, a longer career. He gets the title. Uh, so maybe that does edge him over Barkley. But that was one that kind of made me pause because, you know, Barkley was just such a force uh, at his at his peak. And, and maybe I'm letting – uh, you know, kind of a narrow peak in terms of like influencing winning, uh, you know, kind of shape his entire reputation. I, I know there was a number of years there where in Philly, they were kind of afterthoughts, uh, maybe even more so than, than Minnesota was d- during the early Garnett years. And then I do think that Garnett had a pretty extended reign there in Boston where they're, they're stretching out over multiple years, you know, going on deep playoff runs year after year. So uh, maybe I do wind up, you know, agreeing with ESPN on that one. Barkley has the one, Barkley has maybe the single greatest performance, right? The game seven Phoenix versus Seattle when he had 30 and 25 or what a 35 and 25, or whatever it is like, that's his claim for all of his not winning titles. That's his claim to fame is that single performance. Well, I, we can agree though. That doesn't bump him over any of these guys no. though, because all these guys have incredible individual performances and like, you know, most of them have titles. Uh, and if not titles, then like long stretches of deep playoff runs and probably more total career playoff wins than Barkley. No, Barkley actually, I think, is the one who probably gets hit on the Shaq criticism. Right. Like, I'm not sure he took care of himself as well as, you know, I think there I think there might have been, as great as he was, maybe there was a little more to give. Well, let me ask you, I mean, put yourself in his mind. If If you see that you're at 23 and you're Charles Barkley, are you okay with that? Or are you outraged? Or are you flipping out on TNT? Or, or how do you feel? No, I'm Charles Barkley. I'm outraged. But that's just because I'm Charles Barkley. <laughs> I think he should accept that rating. I think mean, that's pretty fair. You know, he taught 25, you know, and he never won a title. And it's, you know. I would guess he has right. a hard time with Garnett being ahead of him. 
Interesting. Because I think he would think scoring's more important. Yeah, Garnett could really score and shoot the ball too, though, man. That's the thing. Like, I definitely remember him for his, you know, defensive intensity and getting down on his knees barking for the Celtics and clapping in people's heads and all that other goofy stuff. But when he came in, you remember how smooth of a shot he had? He's just kind of silky, this long, uh, long-limbed, lengthy, lanky guy just covering all sorts of ground. There's that famous video of him, uh, you know, playing one-on-one, you know, dribbling the ball between his legs as if he's like a six-foot-one guard. I mean, uh, he had a lot of layers to this game. There's nothing, and and there's nothing better than Garnett's former teammates telling Garnett's or coaches. Doc Rivers is great at it, telling Garnett stories. That that's like, <laughs> yeah. that's like the best part of Garnett. Is like anybody who starts telling stories about his crazy intensity. Super fun to go back through this. Ben Golliver, appreciate it. What do you got coming up on the in the Washington Post? I know you're working on a bunch of great stuff. Uh, I've got a story coming up about Kevin Durant and just sort of, you know, his upbringing uh, in suburban uh, Washington, D.C. and Prince George's County. There's a new movie coming out on Showtime that's about that area that has produced 30 NBA players in the last 20 years. Uh, Just kind of this crazy basketball hotbed that kind of popped up and it explores the reasons why. Uh, Kevin had a lot to say about it. Uh, It was an interesting conversation. So it should be up online Thursday or Friday and people should check that out. If you, uh, when you're done with that, you should uh, go read um, Daniel Coyle's book, Talent Code. Have you read Talent Code? I haven't. He digs into like hotbeds across the world and why they exist for various reasons. That's fascinating. Well, there you go. Uh, you go. Two recommendations for the price of zero. Look at us handing out free tips. That's right. Ben Golliver, you're a good man. Thanks for the time. Ben Golliver with us, Locked On NBA. Now tell your device to play the most recent episode of Chad Ford's NBA Big Board.